John was five years old and it was his birthday. It was his fifth birthday and he couldn't believe his luck. You see, as a five-year-old, he was enthralled by snow. And when he got up on the morning of his fifth birthday, he went to the window in their living room, climbed up on the couch, pressed his face against the back of the couch and the window that was there and watched as the snowflakes fell. And with each falling snowflake, he envisioned the biggest snowball that had ever been built. Bigger than his dad's car, bigger than the garage, bigger than the house they were in. He began to beg and plead with his mom, let me go outside just for a minute. Bill sat with a number card listening to the too fast cadence of the auctioneer. He was at one of the most um, preeminent antique auto auctions in the world. He made lots of money in his life, but the truth is, with all the money he made in his life, he had convinced himself that he needed just one more thing. The most beautiful automobile ever manufactured. And so as he got closer and closer to that particular vehicle, his chest tightened, his ears buzzed, and his hands became clammy as he thought about the fact that by the end of the day, he might own a gorgeous powder blue 1965 Jaguar XKE. She must have dialed the radio station number thousands of times. She just had to win this particular contest. She had to have those tickets. I mean, this was the greatest band in the history of the world. She had all of their albums. She was a part of their fan club. She even spent way too much money on a signed poster from eBay. And now they were coming to her town. And she was doing everything she could to win the contest to see them In person, when the voice on the other line began to talk, she realized that her moment was about to happen. On one hand, it seemed ridiculous to pay $70 for a steak, but this was no ordinary steak. This was a Wagyu cowboy ribeye aged 45 days. He thought, I'll never get a chance for this kind of red meat experience again. And so when the waiter came by, he said, I'll take my medium rare. She stood with her mom holding her hand and she couldn't believe that it had finally arrived. She'd been begging her parents for what seemed like years for this particular moment. And now her mom and dad had given way and they were here. And as she was walking into the gates, her eyes widened as she looked forward to seeing that castle in the happiest place on earth. It was a painting. But not just any painting. This was a particular painting. It had traveled the world, been in all the major galleries, and she was going to get to see it. I mean, she had seen it in books, she had seen it on a poster, but she was going to get to look at it live and in person, and nothing was going to stop her from that moment. He beamed with pride as the crane hoisted the sign and placed it into its final resting place. It was a small sign, it wasn't a big one, but it had his name on it. And it was a small real estate firm, but it was his. He had built it from the ground up. He had developed it from the very foundation. And now he succeeded. He baited the hook one last time. It was getting dark. 
He knew he didn't have much time left on the lake, but he was going to give it one more try because he knew it was out there. He had seen it. People had talked about it. It was the biggest bass in the lake, the biggest one anybody had ever seen. It would be the catch of his life. So he threw his hook into the fading light one more time, held on to the rod, and hoped for a good conclusion. What do all those things have in common? Besides being stories of people with hopes and dreams. What they have in common is they're the stories of people who wake up every day without being aware that they are in a search constantly for something called all. And the dissatisfaction in their soul is giving them the opportunity to continually search for something bigger, something better, something grander. They have an emptiness that has to be filled. They're attracted to awesome things because there's within them a desire for all. And that's why we go to great museums. That's why we go to stadium concerts to see the best musicians. When we go to expensive restaurants to eat the best food. And we go to playoff games to watch the best athletes. That's why a little boy dreams of the Air Jordans in the shoe store. And the businessman dreams of the next acquisition that's coming his way. That's why the little girl dreams of those teenage years and going to prom. And the woman dreams of the dream house she's been planning all her life. So an athlete striving for stardom is the same as a man who's trying to build the perfect family. We're human. And we're hardwired for all. Something bigger and grander than we can even imagine. It's everyone's lifelong pursuit. I love seeing it in the lives of kids who for the first time experience something and they cannot contain the excitement in who they are. I think about my four kids and uh, the four kids all had first birthdays. I don't know if you know that, but kids have birthdays. And they have the first one first. Did y'all know that? The first birthday they had, I, I, we were the parents of that, especially with Eli, we, you know, we didn't let, you know, you know the story about the first kid, like you don't let him have anything. And by the third one, you're just like, it's only been on the floor for 10 minutes, so it's okay, go ahead and take it, right? But we didn't feed our kids any of the, like, you know, the sugars or cakes or cupcakes or anything until their first birthday party, Right? And I love that expression on their faces when they're one and they're sitting in the high chair and you've got them like, you know, draped out and, and everything that you know it's going to get messy. And you take a piece of cake. This was, you know, Eli was before the smash cake tradition that they do now with a whole cake for the kid. Like we gave a piece of cake and they reached out and he just kind of tipped it to the touch his lips. And it was like, mm, oh, you know that moment that like, uh, and I don't, I don't want, oh, yeah, okay, we'll take that, right? Um, I, I saw it yesterday, okay, um, with Luke. Luke's 10 years old, and for some reason, Luke has always refused to put syrup on pancakes. He just eats them plain. And yesterday, for whatever reason, he said, Dad, I'll take a little syrup on my pancakes. And so I put it on there. I was doing something else. I looked over at him. He has the paper plate licking the syrup off. Right? He was like, it is so good. I'm like, I know. Right? Just that moment, like the look in his eyes, like where has this been all my life? We are hardwired for a lifelong pursuit of all. God created us with an all capacity. And where you look to satisfy that need 
will determine the direction of your life. There are lots of people, millions of people, billions of people who have searched to satisfy the need for all in all the wrong places. And misplaced all keeps us perpetually dissatisfied because awesome stuff never satisfies our hearts. Everything that's created in us that draws us towards all is meant to point us towards a creator. And so over the next four weeks, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a series called All. And we're going to ask ourselves the question, who is the one that is truly awe-inspiring? What is it about him that makes us stand in awe? If you've got your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 40. If you don't have your Bibles, you can, if you've got a smartphone, you can go to FBC Goodlettsville slash awesome. All right. And so that's you can go there and it'll be um, ready for you. You can all the scripture from today or uh, Isaiah 40 is all there. All right. And we're going to look over the next few weeks about what all looks like, what is all. And I just want to tell you that in Isaiah chapter 40, today, we're going to look at the first of these characteristics of God. And today has one point. There is one point to the sermon today. It's not a three point. It's not a four point. It's not a 12 point. There's a one point to the sermon today. One message I want you to get today. And here it is. Very simply, God is awesome. All right. Say that with me on the count of three. One, two, three. God is awesome. Now, here's the thing. We have to talk about that for a second because the word awesome has been used so much in our language that it no longer means what it was intended to mean. Like I grew up in the 80s, right? And so when I grew up in the 80s, people dressed like this. All right. We got a picture coming up. Ooh, there it is. Now, like today, this is from a site, actually, that this is a cool, hip costume for this year's Halloween. In my day, when I was in elementary school, we called this Tuesday. All right. Like people just I mean, people actually wore stuff like this. But when I grew up in the 80s, people talked all the time about stuff just being like totally awesome, man. Like it is like rad, awesome, cool. Like and it just meant like, well, that's cool or that's wow. But it didn't mean like awe inspiring. It just was a word that we kind of threw out there, a word that we kind of ruined. I, I remember when I was in, in school that I would, you know, how you, get, you remember y'all you remember you used to get stickers on papers like you did. If you did well, you get, y'all still get stickers on your papers? Okay. Uh, we would get stickers on our paper, you know, like 95 and then a sticker, totally awesome, right? And so I remember that. And so people say stuff like, man, that was awesome. And then, you know, it's kind of brought it down. Or somebody's like, man, you gotta check out my new sound system. It is like totally awesome, alright? Like it is cool, awesome stuff. Or like I went out to eat at the restaurant the other night and I had this dessert and that dessert was awesome. Like, you know, molten chocolate just flowing out. It was awesome. Or, or man, did you see that? That catch was awesome. Right? Can we just dwell on that for a minute? Man, that's... Cool. People ask me today, did you turn it off this week? No, I never turned it on. I was at a, we were out doing stuff and I watched it through the stores of Opry Mills. So I watched every, I stopped in every sports store in Opry Mills to check on what was happening and I watched the last two touchdowns, Georgia and Tennessee's, 
outside of Chili's with about 400 of my best friends, and I may or may not have made an idiot of myself when Tennessee scored the final touchdown, all right? But people, I mean, that catch was awesome. And I'm not denying that stuff is cool. I'll get that off. Get that junk off, Mr. Hodges. People try to be cute. Did y'all know that? So people are like, that's awesome, right? But we don't really mean what the word means. Because originally the word meant, and this is going to blow your mind. Are you ready for this? That the word awesome meant producing all. Complicated, right? But what it really means is it leaves you speechless. And the idea in Scripture is that our God is so awesome that it ought to utter us completely speechless. Here's the thing about him. God is, and this is what awesome means for God in the Bible. God is incomparable with no limitations. God is incomparable with no limitations. Now think about that. Every body that you know, everything that you know is comparable with limitations. But God is incomparable with no limitations. Isaiah chapter 40, it's not going to be on the screen today. And so if you need, uh, if you do need to look at this, you need to pull out your smartphone or whatever and go to that website. Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 1, says this. Now, here's an idea. Isaiah is one of the major prophets of God, one of the most important prophets of God. He was the guy that stood in between God and his people and give God's message directly to them. The book of Isaiah is in two sections. Isaiah 1 through 39 is one section written to Isaiah's day, Isaiah's time, Isaiah's people. Isaiah 40, where we're going to be today, starts a brand new section written to people that would live 100 to 150 years after Isaiah that were in exile in Babylon. People in bondage, people that were in a foreign country and did not have any hope of getting out. So this is written to people in real trouble, in real danger, in real places where they are no way out, don't understand how they're going to get through it. And the first verse of chapter 40, Isaiah says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Now here's something we have to establish early on, okay? And we're going to look at this again in just a second when we get a little farther into this. We're going to talk today about how big, how mighty, how amazing, how totally awesome God is. And by doing that, we're going to set ourselves at this understanding that He is greater than we could ever imagine. But what the Scripture wants us to make sure we never miss is in spite of Him being bigger and greater and grander than we can ever imagine, He is also nearer than we ever think. God, riding through Isaiah for 150 years later, says to His people, I know you're in exile. I know you've been removed from your home. I know my my Jerusalem is destroyed. I know our people are not together. I understand all of that. But I want you to find comfort. God speaks to us and says, whatever situation you're in, whatever difficulty you find, find comfort in me. 
He says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of labor is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned and she has received from the Lord's hand a double for all her sins. He says, listen, good times are coming. Good things are coming. And he's going to base that in the greatness and the awesomeness of God. Verse three. And a voice of one crying out says, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Isaiah is yelling to them and saying, God is about to restore you. Make sure that you're ready. Make sure that the path is clear. Make sure that everything is taken care of. Then he's basically asking the people, what is it in your life that is preventing you from seeing God for who he is? The same question is applicable today to us 2,500 years later. What is in your life that is an obstacle to you seeing God for who he is? Is there a sin in your life that is preventing you from being able to see God as He truly is? Is there a relationship in your life that is preventing you from seeing God as He truly is? Is there a work relationship or work problem or ethical thing at work that's preventing you from seeing God as He truly is? Is there bitterness in your heart that's preventing God being able to show you who He truly is? He says, make straight, make clear. This, this verse actually will be referenced again in the New Testament about John the Baptist who is making a way for Jesus to come. And John the Baptist did that through baptism for sin. Not, not to be forgiven of sin, but just to confess sin and say, I want it out of my life. I want to quit so that I can be prepared to hear who God is and what he's doing for me. Verse 10, chapter 40, verse 10. We see a picture of who God is before he begins to really introduce the bigness of God. Verse 10 says, see, the Lord comes with strength and his power establishes his rule. His reward is with him. His gifts accompany him. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment. In chapter 40, verse 10 and 11, we have really two pictures of God that go side by side throughout Scripture. And the first one is the strong arm of the Lord, Almighty. The picture literally is of a God who rolls up his sleeves to prepare for battle that will bring judgment, that will bring fire and say, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? Quit sinning. Quit walking away from me. Quit. I'm going to destroy the nations that defy me. You have this strong arm of the Lord. But in the very next verse, verse 11, it says, but he protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers his lambs in his arm. This is a tender picture of God, a God who is almighty, a God who is strict, a God who disciplines those that he loves, but also a God that when they're wounded or in need, he will gather them into himself. And then in verse 12, they begin to describe how unbelievably great our God is. Verse 12 says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or marked off the heavens with the span of his hand, who has gathered the dust of the earth in a measure, or weighed the mountains in the balance and the hills in the scales? Give some pictures that don't just jump off the page at us, but they're significant pictures of the greatness of God. The first one he says is who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. How many of you out there have a hand? How many of you have a hand? Okay. Take your hand. All right. 
I want you to cup it. You know, like you would, like you want to hold a little water, okay? So you cup your hand like you're going to hold a little water. That little, that little indenture right there is called the hollow of your hand, okay? That's what they're talking about here. How much water can you hold in the hollow of your hand? Now, some of you aren't participating. I see arms crossed out there. This is, this is, this is group participation time, alright? How much can you hold in the hollow of your hand, right? Just a little bit, right? Not much. Scripture says here that God holds all of the waters in the palm of his hand. Just to give you an idea that if that's just the waters of the earth, all right, that is 912,500 cubic miles. That's cubic miles is a mile by a mile by a mile. 912,500 in the hollow of his hand. Now, you realize Isaiah is not saying that God is an actual physical specimen that has a hand that large. His point is, consider how small you are when you can hold a tiny bit and he holds the oceans in his. Then it says, he measures the heavens or he measures all that he's created with the span of his hand. Now, think about this, okay? The span of his hand, you still got a hand, all right? Put your hand up, spread them apart, right? So from the tip of your thumb to the tip of your pinky is the span of your hand, okay? Now, I I never realized that people had, like, huge hands until I married into the Jet family, okay? So Susan's uh, middle brother, Steve, is six foot seven, played Division I basketball, and has the biggest hands I've ever seen in my life. And he can literally palm a basketball with ease. No lie, I've told this before, first time I ever met the whole family for an event. We were down in Birmingham. It was a basketball tournament weekend. And we got outside and they were like, hey, let's have a dunk contest. It's like, oh, that sounds really cool. We're lowering the goal. Oh, no, we're not lowering the goal. That takes the fun out of it. Because all of them could palm the ball and dunk it from like a step inside the free throw line. Like, y'all don't realize, Susan comes from a family of like athletes, all right? Like, and so they're just grabbing, they're just taking, like, I can barely palm a tennis ball, alright? They're like got basketballs, and not like the, not like the kids basketballs, this is like full on NBA size basketballs, and they're literally palming it and dunking, alright? And so I realized like, huge hands. What this literally says is, God can palm the earth. The earth. Like, 25,326,000 miles around. God can just palm it. Then he says that he gathers the dust of the earth in a measure and weighs the mountains in a balance. You ever seen the mountains? They're huge. It says that God literally... Like when you go to the grocery store and want to figure out how much an orange is going to cost, pick up the orange and stick it in that scale. But God does that with Mount Everest. Just picks it up. Ah, I think that will go good in Nepal. Let's take the Canadian Rockies. Yeah, that'll go. Let's just figure them out. Move them around like Lego pieces. He's huge. He's great. And that's just earth stuff. And then verse 22, it says this. God is enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a cloth and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He says the grandeur of God is so unbelievable that it spans the entire universe. 
We talked about the size of the universe last week, so we're not going to do a lot here. But just to give you another picture, that if the distance between the sun and the earth, which is a significant distance, right? Like nobody's driving that this afternoon. Significant difference. If that were the thickness of a single sheet of paper, then the distance between earth and the next closest star would be a stack of 70 paper, 70 feet high. And the distance across our galaxy, earth to the sun, single sheet of paper, would be a stack of paper 310 miles high or the distance between St. Louis and Chicago. And our galaxy is a speck of dust in the universe. When you look through the telescope, it's hard to imagine just how big God is. But here's the crazy thing about the glory of our God. He's not only seen through the telescope, he is seen in amazement through the microscope. In the complexity of life. Do you realize that one DNA strand in your body, invisible to the human eye, contains information equivalent to 1,500 page books? And if you had a teaspoon of DNA, you could have all the information for all the proteins, for all the species of organism that have ever lived, plus enough room left over for the information in all the books in the world. Your brain contains 100 trillion facts. Now, I didn't say you could access those facts, but they're there. And makes, on average, 15,000 decisions per second. 15,000 decisions per second. Now, think about this. The greatest technology company in the world can't make a phone that lasts more than a couple of years. Can I get an amen from the Apple fans in the room, right? Or Samsung, you get like eight months. But like they can't make phones that last for, and God created a brain that makes 15,000 decisions a second. How to digest food, how to breathe, your heart to pump. Things that you don't even think about. 15,000 decisions a second for decades. Your own heart generates enough pressure as it pumps blood through your body that it could squirt that blood 30 feet. That's a first down. That's 10 yards. Spiders produce three kinds of silk. When they build their webs, they create 60 feet of silk in one hour, simultaneously producing special oil on their feet that prevents them from sticking to their own web. Now, I know most of you don't like spiders, and like one of the worst feelings in the world is when you walk through one of those webs, right? You're like pulling it off. But think about just amazing is, in fact, um, I know you don't like spiders, but if you can spin something four times your body length out of your rear end every single minute, that deserves some respect, Right? Just the complexity of life. You're in the Amazon rainforest. In one square mile, there are 3,000 different species of trees. That's just God showing off. Or even something as simple as the number of ways human beings can laugh. You got the loud laugh. You got the silent, shoulder-heaving laugh, trying to keep it in. The wheezing laugh, the obnoxious laugh, the laugh that gets you to coughing because you can't stop. The snorter laugh, you snorters know who you are, right? All because of an amazing, creative, awesome God. Look at verse 15. The nations, okay, so that's creation. The nations are like a drop in a bucket, 
They're considered a speck on the dust in the scales. He lifts up the islands like fine dust. He says the nations of the world, they would have been worried about Assyria, Egypt, Babylon. They're inconsequential compared to God. He said it doesn't really matter because God can literally, he says, like you pick up a speck of dust on the floor when you're picking up your kitchen or your bathroom or your living room. When you pick up a speck of dust, that's what God does to Oahu or Maui or the Philippines or Indonesia. Like a speck of dust. Inconsequential compared to God. They don't even rank I mean, we're worried about China and Russia and the Middle East, North Korea. They're worried about us. God doesn't worry about any of it. Or the leaders. They would have been worried about Sennacherib or Nebuchadnezzar. And through history, people like Alexander, Napoleon, Hitler, Hussein. It says in verse 23, he reduces princes to nothing and makes judges on the earth irrational. Your best judge seems irrational compared to the goodness and the justice of God. Here's the thing. God did not watch that debate this week wondering what they were going to say and if he could handle it. Amen? And God didn't watch Clinton and Trump and like, what am I going to do with these people? We may. God doesn't. Because to God, they're just nobody. I don't mean that he doesn't love them and care for them. He loves them and cares like everybody. But they're not significant in how they're going to handle world affairs. They don't make decisions that somehow surprise God or get God unaware to where he has no idea what he's going to do. They're puppets. And God says, listen, I am the God who created all at the macroscopic and microscopic level. Then everything I am is great and grand. It is worth all. And when you try to substitute something of this world for me, it's a cheap substitute. Verse 19 says this. Verse 18, back up verse 18. Who will you compare God with? What likeness will you compare him to? To an idol? Something that a smelter casts and a metal worker plates with gold and makes silver welds for it. To one who shapes a pedestal choosing wood that does not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not fall over. He says, who can you compare to me? Certainly not your idol that you made. Can you imagine? Like, what are you doing today at, honey, at work today, honey? Oh, I'm just going to go make a god real quick. I'm going to smelter down some stuff. I'm going to make it into a form. I'm going to add some adornments to it. Oh, I, I, we, don't, we can't afford that for our house. Can you just make something out of wood for us? Oh, yeah, I can make, get a tree and make a god out of a tree. And listen, even if a hurricane comes, it won't topple over. God says, that's ridiculous. This is who I am. I am the God of all. And throughout the book of Isaiah, particularly in chapter 40 and other places we'll look in the next few weeks, God is telling them, you do not have to fear because you can trust in me. I am the God who created the earth. I am the God who knows you by name. I am the God who will take care of everything in your life. He is awesome. Like, totally awesome. In every sense of the word. So what do we do with that? I told you we had one point today. God is awesome. But I got four applications, all right? Number one, we need to learn to honor our creator over creation. Everything God created is given to us in order to look to God and to give him praise. It ought to take us to our knees. It ought to bring us in reverence to him. It ought to make us bow down and worship. The second thing we ought to do is that we trust God. What he says. 
when he says it, we trust it, we obey it, we don't question it. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you believe in God Almighty. It is the most ridiculous statement in the world to think you somehow can ask a question of God's wisdom or plan and think it is better for you. That means, and this is, I know I'm kind of preaching to the choir to some of you here, but that means if Scripture tells us to do something, it means that it is command of God and we listen to it and obey it and we trust it. We don't try to form Scripture into a modern day acceptable politically correct book. We trust Scripture for what it says. I I read something this week on um, Twitter, and and listen, I'm not going to tell you the full uh, place that came from because that just calls more debate about the issues instead of this central quote. But I love this quote. It it was talking in general about how we fight for religious liberty, and it does seem, and we're going to talk about persecution in a couple of weeks, few weeks, but it does seem that, that religious liberty is going away in America in some places. This is what the guy said. He's talking about that and fighting for that. And he said, persecution has never killed the church. But compromise can. And if that means that we don't have religious liberty anymore, it's not going to kill the church. But compromising for the sake of comfort can and will. And we trust that our God is better than any government. Our God is better than any nation. Our God is in control. And so he doesn't surprise them. Oh my goodness, I didn't know they passed that bill. My people can't talk in America anymore. Like he, He knows that, right? He knows what's going on. So we trust him and we do what he says. If that means persecution comes my way because I speak the truth of what Scripture says in a loving manner and persecution still comes, then bring it on. It means if I have to compromise to get something to happen, then I am moving away from the glory and the grandeur and the awesomeness of my God. That's in just big issues. I'm not just talking about big issues. I'm talking about personal life. If you're making decisions that compromise what you know God has told you to be true because you want comfort or support, then you're disowning the reality of the awesomeness of God. We trust what He says. Thirdly, we worship with abandon. We just let it go. Now, it didn't happen in the second service. But in the first service today, um, our kids sang, and there were a couple of things that I loved about um, when our kids sang in the first service today. First of all, we had one of our uh, one of our girls that just as the music was playing and things were going, she just started moving. Now, if it wasn't a Baptist church, we might call it dancing. Uh, we call it foot praise or praise the Lord with the feet, y'all, or interpretive movement, or biblically it'd be called dancing, all right? And so she was doing that. And here's what I love. You know, the congregations here, nobody in the congregation was thinking, well, I can't believe she's doing that. They're like, oh, that's cute. She just, because for her, that's just the natural expression of who she is. She didn't think it through like, am I able to do this in this space? What are the rules about how I can act in this building? It just moved her and she reacted. The intensity of your worship or how you talk about something shows how much you value it. 
Listen to C.S. Lewis quote. The most obvious fact about praise, whether God or anything else, strangely escaped me. I never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Readers praise their favorite poet. Walkers praise the countryside. Fans praise their favorite game. We praise the weather, wines, dishes, actors, cars, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even some politicians or scholars. If you enjoy it, you praise it. You can look at what people worship by what they praise. What does our society praise? You tell me, what does our society praise? What do they worship? Money? Success? There's no way, and this is not a political statement at all, but there's no way either one of the people running for president would ever run for president unless they made a lot of money, both of them. One of them, that's how he's running. I made a lot of money. Success. What else? What do we worship? Technology. Social media. Our opinions. Never before has it been easier to get your opinion out there. And never before have we questioned what's the good in doing that. Sports. I was thinking about this this week with a group of kids called the Cameron Crazies. Y'all know who Cameron Crazies are? They're the fans for the Duke basketball team. These are kids that made 1600s on their SATs, the smartest kids in the country. And they paint themselves, they walk into this place and without a shirt on and paint letters on there and act like absolute fools for two and a half hours. Academics, politics, entertainment, whatever we value, we praise and what we praise, we worship. Now, obviously, I like sports. I mean, I showed a picture of Tennessee. I did act kind of crazy yesterday running around the food court of Opry Mills. But here's also what happened immediately. I I was in Opry Mills. And so I don't know if you've ever if you've been in Opry Mills on like a Saturday late afternoon. um, There are lots of people there. And so cell service doesn't work. And so when I got to my car, like I started getting text messages and Facebook notifications and Twitter notifications. People were going nuts. Like, where's the pastor? Is he fainted? Why is he responding? You know, and I did like I I love all that. That's cool. But part of me, honestly, and I'm not trying to be religious on everything here, but part of me was like, man, I long for the day when our church celebrates the things of God like we just celebrated a pass. When I get text messages in the middle of the week, you're not going to believe what God just did in my life. When we walk out of this place and we're like, man, that was ridiculous. That worship service was amazing. Not because we did something up here, but because you came prepared, ready, expectantly, ready to hear from God. And you worshiped him in spirit and in truth with abandon doing whatever came in that moment. When I interviewed here. Over nine years ago, they asked me, I don't know if you know this, but there's this little controversy sometimes about what kind of music you play in worship. I don't know if you've heard of that. And they said, what, what, kind of, what kind of worship do you want to do? I said, my biggest concern is that people do it. Whatever that means. Now, we try to figure out what does that look like? How do we pray through that? We meet, we talk, we plan, and then we come in here and, and, and I, I've come and we're ready. We're expectant and God wants to move. What is it that we need to clear out of the path to let God move in this place? Because when you get a vision 
of how awesome God is. We can say it with our lips all that we want to, but we are just like in Isaiah, it says, they praise me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. When we get a vision for the grandeur, for the majesty, for the glory of God, it will result in worship where we don't care what people think. Now, I'm not saying come in here with you, paint it up, all that, all right? But a little woo every now and then might be all right. A little energy, a little excitement, a little preparation. How many of you did anything this week to prepare for 1030 this morning? How many of you would send your kids to school without ever doing their homework? How many of you would ever go to your job without ever taking any moment to prepare? How many of you going to a sporting event wouldn't at least think about it or get ready for it in some way? And how many of you did anything to prepare your heart for what was going to happen this morning? When we get a vision of the grandeur and the glory of God, it leads us to a place where we can worship with abandon. And the last thing is, you've heard it before, you hear it all the time from us, live passionately devoted lives. Not just here at 1030 on Sunday morning, but in every moment of your life, the driving factor is the glory of the great name of God and what he's called you to do. God's awesome. And when we realize that, it ought to drive us to reevaluate everything in our lives about how we respond to him and how we live out our faith. Let's pray.